Hello and welcome to The Rundown, a podcast from Politics Home. I'm your host, Alan Tollest, and in this week's episode, we're going to be looking at the role of the Lord Spiritual, aka the 26 Church of England bishops who sit in the upper chamber, and ask what role, if any, they should still be playing in parliamentary democracy in the 21st century. To help me discuss that, our panel this week is Tommy Shepherd, SNP MP and Chair of the Humanist Group in Parliament, Jess Sargent, Associate Director of the Institute for Government, and Edward Stern, presenter of BBC Radio 4's Religious Affairs programme, Sunday, who has just written a book of the same name. So I'm going to start with you, Jess. As I said, there are 26 Church of England bishops who sit in the, in the House of Lords. Just explain to us how we kind of got to the position. There have been lots of kind of Lords reform over the years, different bits, removing some of the hereditary peers, etc., etc. But the, the bishops have survived. Just talk to us through how they ended up in this position where we have these unelected, you know, appointed uh, bishops in the upper chamber. So the role of the Lord Spiritual kind of dates back to when Parliament was first kind of established, when it first became a feature of the UK constitution. And since then, we have seen some reforms. So initially, they used to outnumber the Lords Temporal, who were the Lords that are the non-bishops, until Henry VIII, where their number was quite greatly reduced. It was later in the 19th century that we saw that number reduced again to the 26 that we have today. There was one further reform in order to get more women into those bishop positions in 2015. There was a law passed that said that for the next 10 years, any vacancies were taken by women. But other than that, as you say, although there have been lots of changes to both the powers and the form of the House of Lords, the bishops so far have remained a fairly consistent feature. Yeah, Edward, they kind of date back to kind of the, the feudal period. And it's a bit of an oddity. I think it's only maybe the, the Vatican City and possibly uh, Iran and, uh, yeah. and yeah. Belize as well has a, has, a, has a member of the Belize Senate, I think, is a by the Council of Churches, you know, that that has this kind of place set aside for religious figures. You know, what have you kind of made of it? You obviously cover religious affairs for a long time. It's just very very rum, really, isn't it? And it it goes back to, let's be honest, the lusts of a long-dead king and a 16th century form of Brexit. I mean, that is how the Church of England became established, and that is why they are still, in this very strange way, really, um, part of our legislative process. Mm. It's particularly odd, I think, because... In contrast, say, to a country like the United States, which has a very secular constitution, but where religion looms very large indeed in the public debate, we are exactly the opposite. We have a constitution which is still a bit of a theocracy, as you say, in odd sort of ways. But actually, the issues of religion are neuralgic in in public life, and we just don't talk about them. So it's even odder because of that. Mm. Yeah, Tommy, uh, the SNP have never been big fans of the House of Lords in general, but particularly the uh, the, the Lords uh, Spiritual. You know, you led a debate in Westminster Hall earlier this year about, I just wondered what, what your kind of position on, is on it, and obviously as, as a humanist as well, that the fact that it's these positions are only there specifically specifically for members of the Church of England? Yeah, well, I'm sort of coming at this from two directions, I suppose, Alan. I mean, you're right. I mean, the speaking as a constitutional spokesperson for the SNP, we, we have our difficulties with the British Constitution in its entirety. So it's not it's not just the House of Lords. And, and clearly our aspiration is for Scotland to become a, a self-governing nation and have a, a different relationship with the rest of Britain. But leaving that to one side, for the time being, I'm anxious to see if reforms can be made to to the system because we're talking about uh, an institution here and the role of the church within an institution which predates democracy. These positions were established at a time when it wasn't the role of parliament to represent or advocate on behalf of the citizens. It was the role of parliament to be councillors to the monarch. 
and it's not been reformed ever since. It's more than an anachronism or an archaic sort of blip in the Constitution. I think it is now quite offensive, really, to those who believe in democracy and those who believe in a plural society that just one church, just one of the of the many churches in the United Kingdom, should have this degree of political influence and representation above all others. And it really is something that needs to be addressed if we're to respect the multi-faith tradition that we have in this country and, of course, a situation where now a majority of people do not profess any religious faith at all. Can I just follow up on that? Because I think part of the question is the degree of moral legitimacy they have as representing you know, a significant number of the population. And just doing the book that you kindly mentioned, I look back to the 1960s, just before the Sunday programme was formed. And at that stage, almost every single producer in the BBC's religion department was an ordained priest in the Church of England. And in one of our very, very early editions, we reported on a moral call to the nation from the then Archbishop of Canterbury, Donald Coggan. We gave him almost the entire programme as if he was a prime minister. Mm. And 28 thousand people of all sorts of estates in life wrote to Lambeth Palace and said how wonderful it was to hear a moral statement from the Archbishop of Canterbury. That is unimaginable now and I think that that enormous change which I find I very much noticed going through the archives of the programme is something that you know probably we need to reflect. Yeah and uh, if you look at the the 2021 census was the first time that that Christianity did not represent the majority of people responding to the to the census and 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 so Jess obviously you've been involved with the IFG's Bennett Institute review of the the constitution and obviously there have been various laws reforms over the years as I mentioned the the, the Tony Blair era reforms when they got rid of most of the hereditary peers and left 92 and also left the, the Lord's spiritual. You know, what are the kind of the, the reforms that have been suggested in the sort of 25 years since then? Yeah, so there have been several attempts at House of Lords reform after the, the 1999 reforms, which were intended to be a first stage. Um, generally, what we've seen is cross-party commissions or white papers or proposals um, that were never actually implemented because of lack of agreement as to what form a reformed House of Lords should take. Actually, in most of those, we have actually seen the retained role for the bishops, although there have been several proposals both to reduce the number. So I think the most recent reforms, the 2011 coalition, white paper proposed reducing that number to 12 over time and also some changes to exactly how those Church of England's representatives were chosen so allowing potentially a greater diversity different kinds of church representatives rather than just automatically the most kind of senior or yeah because at the moment isn't it of the, of the 26 there are five who are kind of always there the Archbishop of Canterbury and the four others and then the other 21 are essentially on seniority of the 40 or so bishops there are in total so it's a, it's a kind of a the odd system for getting them into there in the first place as well. Yeah, exactly. And one of the consequences of the Church of England representatives being such senior bishops is that actually they have very little time to attend the House of Lords to participate in debates. Now, some people might argue that that's a good thing. They might actually want to minimise their participation, but others would argue that perhaps they're not fulfilling that role. So there has been some discussion about changes to the kind of process for deciding who goes in in order to allow kind of different kinds of Church of England representatives there. But as we said, those those proposals 
proposals have largely been unsuccessful. There's a question of future Lords reform and what the role of the bishops might be in that. We haven't seen a huge amount of detail about the proposals that Labour might put forward. Mm. The most detailed account of that we've seen is in Gordon Brown's Commission on the Future of the UK, which proposed a wholly elected House of Lords in which you can't really imagine a space there for bishops unless uh, they were to stand for election for a party or potentially for a bishop's party, should they wish. Um, <laughs> yeah, that would be interesting, yeah. But So I think that's still very much an open question that something that if this is something that the Labour Party pursues, they might need to consider when thinking about those proposals for reform. Yeah, we'll, we'll kind of come on to Labour's potential reforms. But but Tommy, I said you led that debate in Westminster Hall. What were the kind of arguments you heard from MPs who were perhaps in favour of, of them staying? Because it's kind of interesting to try and hear the, the arguments we've been quite sort of negative about their, their role at the moment. What, what are the kind of arguments you hear from MPs about keeping them and what have you kind of made of those? Well, there weren't many, but such as they were, were from members who would describe themselves, I think, as advocates for the church. <laughs> One of the church commissioners in Parliament turned up and made as eloquent a case as, as he could. So, I mean, the argument on the other side was from people who wish to protect what is clearly a vested interest. I, I, it's almost unarguable, isn't it? I mean, you can't really, if you, you know, unless you have a dog in the fight, it's almost impossible if you're a neutral observer to justify the fact that one church should have 26 members in a legislature who are not accountable to anyone apart from the church itself and who have got no restrictions or obligations upon them not to advocate for the church's interest. I mean, this gives the Church of England a role in our constitution, in our lawmaking, which no other church has. And it's it's wholly undemocratic. Ed's right. We, you know, this might have been acceptable in the 50s, right? But, you know, we, we are now a, a modern, multi-faith, quite secular population who deserve better representation in our legislature than this. And, and I think that's really the, the way that it has to go. But can I just say, Alan, this isn't the only or even the biggest problem with the House of Lords. The biggest problem with the, the Second Chamber is that it is elected by and accountable to no one. Uh, that, is, that is its problem. And that anachronism needs to be dealt with. And, and a part of dealing with that, I think, will be to, to look at the role of the church. And by the way, no one's saying there shouldn't be bishops in the House of Lords or in, in Parliament. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying they should play by the same rules everybody else does. Yeah. Can I just throw in by way of observation, Tommy, something which I think is worth remembering, which is there's a bit of traffic in the other direction. We've been talking about the way the Church of, of England can influence our laws. Actually, the lawmaking bodies recently have had quite a big influence on the Church of England. So in the case both of women bishops particularly, it was when MPs started whispering to the Archbishop of Canterbury, look, if you don't sort this out in a sensible way, I'm afraid Parliament is going to take a hand in it and you're going to look very silly. And that was beginning to happen in the debate about blessings of gay gay relationships. So so it is quite, I mean, it's quite interesting to see there's a pushback from Parliament as well. Touching on that, the fact is that having them, as, as Tommy says, voting in, I think a study in the in the 80s found that maybe there was only one division where bishops had kind of changed the outcome, but they, they're they voting, obviously, there's 26 and they don't all vote at the same time, they don't all vote as a block either. But it is interesting, I think, to the outside world, the idea that, for example, the passage of a law, which is 
created normally by elected representatives of the people can be derailed and altered by bishops, members of the Church of England. And, and can you just talk us through a bit some of how that has worked over the years? So, I mean, the first thing to say is that bishops do have quite low attendance rates for particular votes. I think in the most recent full session, it was around 6%. We've seen it sort of 8% in the past couple of sessions. Back in the noughties, it was around 2 or 3%. So they don't commonly attend divisions. But as you say, there is still this question of principle about when it is appropriate. And actually, quite often, we'll see them attend divisions of pieces of legislation that are particularly controversial. So one example is the legislation that legalised same-sex marriage marriage, in which comparative to to other pieces of legislation, there was quite a high bishop turnout rate in, in, in those debates and questions about the appropriateness of having religious representatives in that debate and privileging those over other voices. Similarly, in some of the issues around Rwanda and some recent immigration policies, we've seen bishops turn up in big numbers on, on those sorts of votes. And again, that's resulted in some sort of pushback against the government. Mm. I think one thing to mention here is that what we've seen recently in particular is a sort of pushback from the government where they feel that the church and the bishops are being overly vocal, that they have kind of threatened reform in response to specific kind of policy interventions. Actually, you know, removing the bishops from the House of Lords wouldn't prevent the Church of England from having a voice on those questions. But there is this question of where that voice should best be, whether it should be kind of outside as part of a sort of societal debate or whether it is appropriate, as you were kind of posing the question, to have it in the legislature itself. Mm. Yeah, I, I suppose there are other countries have had similar things where religious leaders have been involved in, in parliamentary democracies. But a lot of them, especially European countries, they had big constitutional reforms due to wars or, or revolutions and all sorts of stuff, whereas the UK is kind of muddled through with our uncodified constitution. And I suppose it's it's about whether someone can really get a grip and do the, the real donkey work that it would take to really put the stuff together and then come up with, say, a, a second chamber. I was speaking to Edward before, they're saying that essentially a lot of governments just think that it's not really worth the hassle, essentially, that it's not worth taking up the bandwidth of government time to do so. And that's how we've kind of ended up in this position. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the question specifically about bishops is really bound up in questions about the role of the Church of England, the role of the monarch as the head of the Church of England, uh, which are very difficult to sort of disentangle. And as you say, I think on a lot of issues in the UK constitution, there is consensus around the need for reform. I think actually most people would agree that the House of Lords as it is, is not kind of the optimum scenario for democracy and for scrutiny, particularly in light of some of the recent appointments by Boris Johnson, which have been particularly controversial. But there is still quite a significant disagreement about what should replace it. And I think sometimes that prevents progress, because as you say, it requires a lot of coalition building, it requires a lot of thorough thought, because it would be actually quite a fundamental change for our constitution. So as you say, the fact that the UK constitution is a product of evolution, means that we do have these sort of strange quirks that when you explain them to someone um, outside of the UK system can often seem completely surprising uh, and very, very strange. I mean, a couple of illustrations of that strangeness. We actually did a bit of work on a recent Sunday programme about the way the Lord's spiritual vote, because the Tory MP had been on the programme and said they're all, basically said they're all a bunch of leftists, and actually crunching, crunching the figures. It, it did look rather that way. Somewhere in the, in the mid-90% of the votes cast were against the government. I don't know whether that means the bishops are getting more political or the government's getting more godless. I don't know which way to look at it. Well, but, the, the, you know, the Church of England used to be called the Tory party at prayer. Maybe it's, it's the la- Labour no. prayer, yeah. But there's also weirdness of having, I mean, you you mentioned, Jess, the Illegal Immigration Act. You've got the leader of a church who sits in the House of Lords as of right because of that position, criticising legislation 
that's proposed by a Hindu prime minister and I think she's a Buddhist home secretary. I don't know what to make of that, but it's odd. Just put it that way. Yeah, Tommy, the bishops have broadly voted in, in line with with the opposition, including the, the SNP on much of the positions on things like illegal immigration. So you're doing yourself out of 26 votes in the House of Lords, potentially, if, if you were to, to get rid of them. But what, what have you kind of made of the of the kind of the recent backlash? Because obviously, I guess you had some of those MPs who were agreeing with you, were agreeing from a position of wanting them to, to get rid of them because they felt they were too anti-government, I suppose. I think you have to try and argue these things with a matter of principle. I mean, to give you another example, I'm myself and my party are fully in favour of proportional representation for the House of Commons. The the party that would that would least benefit from that in the current arrangements are ourselves. We would lose most yeah. seats if we moved to a, a proportional system. That doesn't make us say, oh, uh, there's something wrong with proportional representation because we are the losers in it. So you sometimes you have to stick with the principle. And the principle here is that those who make laws over others should be accountable to them. That seems to me a a fundamental tenet of democracy. And not to have that gives politics, gives British democracy a bad name. And I think it's part and parcel, along with other things, it's part and parcel of of the fact that we don't have a, a level of political engagement in this country and support for our institutions that, I, that I, I would like to have and it exists in many other countries with different constitutions and, diff- and different systems. So this is part of a debate about the renewal of politics and, and trying to move towards a 21st century citizen in, engaged democracy, which is something that we're a long way away from. But on your point, Alan, about how the, the bishops actually vote, I mean, let's be clear, they play two roles. I mean, One is to try and be some sort of moral conscience of the nation and inject these types of arguments into discussions. And I think they do that very well. I think they could do that by standing for election just as well, to be honest. But the other thing about the the, the bishops spiritual is that they are there to provide institutional representation for the established church. And there there are instances where the bishops have voted and have made a difference to the outcome of proposals which would directly affect the Church of England. The Equality Act 2010 and the Education Adoption Act 2016 are two examples where their votes defeated proposals that would have had an effect on how they themselves operate. And that's not right. We need a situation where we try and separate religion and politics in this country and have a democratic constitution where it's the same rules for everybody and everybody has an equal chance to put forward their point of view and to be represented. Mm, but, but on that, obviously, the, the Church of England themselves say that the continuing place of Anglican bishops in the Lords reflects our enduring constitutional arrangement with an established Church of England and its supreme governor as monarch and head of state. So really, you'd be unwrapping all of those things, essentially, if you were to try and do that. I see you might be nodding your head at that, but is that, is that, is that something that you, you think that that's, that's, that's what should happen? Yeah, I know women used not to be able to vote. <laughs> Come on. Yeah. I mean, you know, the times change. I mean, this this is not the, the 15th century. <laughs> no, that's true. <laughs> that is true. Uh, Jess, you're going to come in on that. Yeah, just on the question of sort of whether the bishops tend to be sort of left leaning. I think actually, if you look at the data back to the sort of early 2000s, what we see is actually most of the time the bishops vote against the government, whoever the government is. And that can probably partially be explained by the fact that they vote very rarely. And so it tends to be that when they do turn up and vote, it's voting against a proposal that they want to stop rather than necessarily kind of being part of the sort of day to day scrutiny of legislation like you might see of, of other peers. Mm. Edward, 
one of those other MPs who's who's been critical of of, of the bishop's role recently, as you mentioned on the illegal migration, was was uh, the Tory MP uh, Chris Loder, yeah. who said that bishops risk becoming politicians that wear mitres. But I wonder if maybe actually some of them might wear that as a bit of a badge of honour, potentially. Well, I suppose it's what we're asking them to do, isn't it? I mean, we're giving them a a voice in a political chamber. We shouldn't complain, really. I don't think if they. You know, if it, and the immigration thing is a good answer because they start with a moral principle. Yeah. Chris Loder used the expression, they should stay in lane. Well, that is staying in lane. You know, yeah. they're, they're commenting on the morality of the issue and they're yeah, following they're, they're not coming. They're not coming up with their own political policies. No. They're not coming up with practical solutions. They're just saying, from a moral standpoint, we don't think that this is the policy we should and be And they are following through into the political consequences of that moral position, which is what we ask them to do by giving them a seat in the House of Lords. So I, I don't think you can complain... <laughs> about that really yeah I think the relations have, have broken down I think quite a, quite a bit my uh, colleague Tally Fraser from the House magazine reported that it was the relationship between the Church of England and, and the Home Office particularly was, was really toxic and I think Justin Welby had tried to meet with Swallow Braverman but they've not sat down together I just wondered what do you thought about that, that well, relationship and whether that, that relationship needs repairing for kind of broader reasons I suppose I, well just a couple of things um, Jess said that they tend to vote against the government which we found was true but we also found it true and I'm ashamed to say I don't have the figures immediately at hand, but we did find it true that they did that more often when the Tories were in power mm. than they did yeah, when Yeah, the, the when figure Labour. was a lot lower. I think back in 99, they opposed Tony Blair's government in 27% of divisions, whereas, right. like you say, it's up to sort of 98% now. Um, and the other point to make, I think, is that is that tensions between governments and the Church of England are not new. No. And if we think back to Margaret Thatcher's time, the famous row over... Archbishop Runcie's sermon after the Falklands War, the Faith in the City report, which was extremely, or appeared to be extremely critical of some Tory policies, caused a huge row. It's worth also saying, actually, if we are talking about that, that the Church of England and Robert Runcie supported the war in the Falklands. And at that stage, his words in the House of Lords were very sort of carefully listened to. So, you know, it's a, it's a mixed picture over the years, but it's it's not an invention of this government that yeah. there's, there's trouble with the with the bishops bench yeah actually Tommy I just wanted to pick up on something you said about that bishops don't have constituents because actually a lot of them say that they do have constituents because they have a bishopric that they, they cover and so they speak for their their kind of flock in that sense I wonder what you made of that argument yeah but that's not democratic because they don't represent the people and to be in a, a parliament which is making laws for the people you ought to be representing the people and you ought to be accountable to them can I just say on this question of morality as well and introducing yeah. a moral dimension to political debate. As chair of the humanist group, I want to just point out that most humanists would regard themselves as extremely moral people. They do have a view, a very strong humanitarian view about how we should behave toward each other and a, a code by which we live our lives. But what we're talking about here is a particular morality being given a privileged position in the legislature so that, for example, when it comes to matters like assisted dying or same-sex marriage or other what people might regard as controversial social policy, the morality is very much influenced by their religious belief in a god. And that's not something now which a majority of people in the country actually share. And I don't think that should have this institutional influence in our legislative system. Again, I'm not saying that the Church of England isn't an important institution, that it shouldn't have its view, that it shouldn't argue these cases and persuade people of the religious dimension to it. It simply shouldn't have a privileged automatic position in Parliament to be able to do so. Yeah. You know, that the uh, the Cabinet Office Minister Alex Burkhart responded on behalf of the government to your debate saying that removing bishops' households was not something the government will be engaging in, which I was quite an interesting kind of wording. And I suppose it's from this government, I know it's, you might not want to try and get stuff 
done before an, an election, but it doesn't seem as though the Conservatives have, have any desire to try and, despite their current issues with them, have any desire to try and get rid of the bishops. No. I think Alex almost sort of uh, did indicate, though, that the position's indefensible in that he didn't try to <laughs> argue a political case for it. He just said, you know, it's, 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 too much, it's too much trouble and think we're too busy to actually do anything about it, was really is the government's position. That will remain the government's position until enough people argue for this debate to be prioritised and changed. And I, I accept that we're not at that point yet. But, you know, our mm. campaign continues to try and do the right thing here. I was just to say, I mean, you're talking about the bishops. It's a very small, as Jess was suggesting, it's a very small part of the much bigger question of yeah. reform of the House of Lords, isn't it? And, and that is a huge task for any government to take on. And as Tommy says, they often think they're too busy to get around to it. Yeah, and, and you think, think that, back to Tony Blair, yeah. got halfway and then gave up. Yeah, exactly. And, and you think that if you start to unpick that sort of stuff, suggesting that you separate out the role of the Church of England and the bishops and the House of Lords, and then you're essentially, you, and you remove the hereditaries, you start looking at the monarchy potentially as well. It's it's, it's a much broader it's fundamental very, co- is, um, yeah, question. It is, it is. And, and it consumes huge political energy, I would have thought. Yeah, just 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 on that, what you kind of made of it, the kind of potential for a piecemeal reform of stuff, or whether actually any political party that kind of grasped the nettle would have to go kind of the, go the whole hog. And that's why we mentioned earlier Gordon Brown's paper for Labour, looking at constitutional reform and, and looking at elected second chamber and the way that actually initially Keir Starmer, the Labour leader, was very keen on enacting that in a first term of a Labour government. But now that seems like that potentially could be pushed into second term which essentially is what you do with all the difficult things that you don't really want to have to get involved with you, you push them into a, a second term essentially yeah I mean I think it's very difficult to tell at this point exactly where where Labour is on this and I think that's something that will become clear in the run-up to the election when we see the manifesto and exactly what commitments are contained in there one of the things that we has been reported recently is that Labour is looking to do some sort of short-term reforms if it got in immediately including potentially removing the remaining hereditaries we don't know if the bishops might feature in that or if it's something that they might leave to a second stage if that's the way that they choose to do it so I think there's still a lot of kind of uncertainty and I don't think this particular question around the bishops is necessarily at the forefront of the party's mind when they're thinking about these reforms it is interesting actually that all the previous versions of reform have retained a role for the bishops where you might expect that you know by doing this big bang reform that would be kind of one of the issues that they would seek to to modernize yeah I think We'll have to see exactly where the party ends up landing on that. So we, we don't have to cast votes for the bishops' party just yet. I don't. I don't think. Before we kind of wrap it up, then just looking sort of more more broadly. Actually, I was going to start with you, you Tommy. You, you talked before about the way that Christians talk about the sort of the morality, the, the moral position that the bishops provide. Does that kind of annoy you when you hear perhaps maybe MPs or the people in public life talking about as a Christian, my moral values say this? When actually you say as a, as a humanist, you have values, and actually you know every prime minister we've ever had essentially has has been a person of of faith and has touched on their faith does that kind of annoy you in a sense as, as, as humanists that you you have pretty strong moral positions but not requiring a, a faith in that sense well it sometimes annoys me when people of faith presume that those of us who don't have faith are somehow you know amoral heathens who who, who, have, <laughs> who don't believe in certain things we humanists have extremely strong values and extremely strong views about how we should interact with each other so but I'm trying to argue for an institutional separation of, of state and, and church, you know, which is a, a principle that, that Democrats have argued for centuries and we've never managed to achieve in the United Kingdom. So that that is my principal argument. I'm not saying that people of faith shouldn't be in politics. Not at all. I think that, that, mm. that people who are motivated by 
religious belief have got a, a very important role to play and, and sometimes can make a unique and very interesting contribution to a debate. And I want to have that voice represented. But they should seek representation in the legislature on the same terms as everyone else. When it comes to House of Lords reform, I mean, there are, I think you approach this in two levels. There's the high-level reform, which which we're going to have to spend a little bit of time talking about and clearly can't be done by an incoming administration in, in a year or two. But they could start the process of firstly asking the question, do you need a second chamber? And if you do, mm. what is its role? How, should it be, how would it be elected? How would it relate to the, the House of Commons? How would it relate to regional, provincial and national government within, within Britain? And a whole lot of questions have to be answered. But there are immediate things you could do, like moving on the hereditaries, like bringing in a term of office and, you know, just saying, right, OK, you're appointed, but you can, you can only serve for seven years and then you have to leave and somebody else has to come. Or maybe having a, maybe having a sort of a, a one in, two out policy to try and bring down the, the numbers. Well, that's the other thing we haven't even discussed. I mean, the size of this institution is just ridiculous. I mean, it's the, big, the biggest legislator in the world apart from the, apart from the people of the Republic of China. You know, so, yeah. so yes, there are things you could do short term that would have a real effect. And one of those would be removing the, the 26 bishops or, or subjecting them to the whole act procedure in the same appointments procedure as anyone else. But you could be doing these things while you're preparing the constitutional changes that are needed in the longer term. And then you would signal your intent and the direction of travel that you want to go in. Yeah, last word to you then, Edward. You, as you talked about the kind of the the grip that religion had on in public life 50, 60 years yeah. ago. And this debate we were having about bishops in the House of Lords would, we probably would not have had it at the time when you no. started, when Sunday, but, but, when but, 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 started. But 50 years ago, we wouldn't really have debated very much whether hereditaries should be. You know, that was, <laughs> no, that was no, quite we, widely accepted. We would have accepted. So, so I just wonder, you know, where we are now, and do you think that actually it is that move away from religion in public life that is leading to these kind of questions and you think that it's going to continue in, in the same direction, do you think? I don't know, I'm, and I'm not a constitutional expert. My sense is that... Luckily we've got Jess here, so that's, <laughs> that's fine. My sense, for what it's worth, is it's one of those things that it's so difficult to take on that nobody very much wants to do it. And, you know, it, it's still held in great affection by lots of people, the yeah. Church of England. And uh, you might just risk looking a bit mean if you... Uh, <laughs> I don't know. But, I mean, I, I, I do think there's a, there are big institutions in Britain. The BBC is one of them. Yeah. Which take it on slightly at your peril because it's a big chunk of stuff to to bite off. Yeah, absolutely. Jess, do you, do you agree on that? I think actually the, the, the analogy with, actually I think with, with Parliament itself, it's too difficult often to try and rebuild Parliament and that's one of the reasons why it sits and sticks around and sort of crumbles. I wonder if that's that's something that you, you see with kind of the reform in the sense. Absolutely. I think although constitutional reform is actually very easy in the UK and that it just requires a simple majority in, in Parliament, it tends to be politically quite difficult and as I said before, I think there's a lot of areas where people would agree on the problem but disagree on the solution and fundamentally any change particularly to parliament is going to have really wide-reaching effects and i think that's one of the things that holds people back but you know in in the past we have seen major constitutional reforms including devolution and brexit so it's certainly something you can't count out if there's a government who is willing to do that that's all we've got time for this week but you can read all the latest on the big stories from westminster at politicshome.com and keep right up to date by subscribing to our seven-day week newsletters by clicking on the link on our homepage. Thanks to my brilliant guests, Tommy Shepard, Jess Sargent, Edward Sturton. Thanks for all for listening. Please subscribe wherever you podcast and leave us a review. If you want to get in touch, then reach out to us on Twitter at Politics Home or email us via news at politicshome.com. But for now, I have been Alan Tolhurst and this has been The Rundown. <laughs>